Hey everyone, welcome back to the podcast. My guest today is David Scott Kruger, who's a PhD researcher at Mila, which is a world-leading AI lab based in Montreal, Canada, which is home to, among other people, deep learning pioneer Joshua Bengio. One of David's most recent studies has been an investigation into the ways that we can manage the incentives that AI systems have to influence the world itself. One of the most obvious examples of a place where this kind of issue might be relevant is recommender algorithms, which a lot of people are concerned might actually have an incentive to manipulate their users in order to make user behavior easier to predict. So we'll be talking about a mix of present-day concerns over current AI systems and longer-term issues that might arise as those systems become more and more powerful and more and more ubiquitous. I really enjoyed the conversation. I hope you do too. All right, so here we are. David, thanks so much for joining me for the podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. Well, I'm really excited to have you. You've done a whole bunch of really interesting work, some of it a little bit, um, a little bit unorthodox. You're digging into interesting aspects of the alignment problem in machine learning. So we're definitely gonna talk a lot about some of your more recent work. But I wanna start at the beginning in terms of your own motivations, in terms of the way you first approached this field, because everybody's got their own origin story with this stuff. Um, how did you come to AI alignment and AI safety as your area of focus? Yeah, um, it's a long story. Um, I would say I started to think pretty seriously about like ethics and how I could do the most good in the world um, when I was still starting high school, so like 13 or 14. And that led me to be very interested in like animal welfare and global poverty. Um, so this would have been, I don't know, like back in 2003 or something. So I think this is before like effective altruism was a movement and all that stuff. Um, but I had heard of like Peter Singer, for instance. That's kind of what I saw myself doing when I got to college. But when I got to college, I also met uh, somebody almost immediately who was uh, also like a utilitarian, um, but was very focused on the singularity and was a big fan of Ray Kurzweil and basically quickly convinced me at least intellectually, if not emotionally, that uh, the most important stuff and probably way more like utility and flourishing and so on lay in the future and would be you know, caught up with things like transhumanism and AI and uh, colonizing the rest of the light cone and all of that. Um, so that wasn't really, that, that has never had the same like emotional appeal to me as more like present and obvious issues of like other beings suffering. I basically, uh, I, I tend to always bite the bullet on these questions. Uh, and if I can't find like an actual reason why the reasoning is wrong, then I'm inclined to eventually uh, follow it. And I went to a college, read college that didn't have a, a CS department at all because I never liked computers. And so I really was not expecting to like suddenly find myself in this position of wanting to study AI so that I could build these awesome AI systems that were gonna, you know, create this this sort of post-human future. But I started I started taking some like intro CS classes and I found it was really cool. Um, it was just like fun math problems. So throughout the course of my undergrad, I was learning more about about AI. And actually when I got to college, I didn't even realize it was a thing people studied, like you know, in, in the academy, so to speak. I thought it was really just in the realm of science fiction. A couple of things happened while I was in college. One is that I became a lot more cynical about like the the way that the world works and the, like basically I stopped to think that just like technological progress and creating more stuff necessarily would lead to better outcomes. 
that made me like a lot more worried about the creation of AI on the timescale of like, say within my lifetime. And uh, even what if it, it was- What moved you in that direction, by the way? Like what caused that cynicism to happen? Oh, that's a really good question. Um, it, I think it had to do to some extent with an anthropology class that I took on humanitarianism and development, which just had a overall, I would say like a very sort of critical take on these things. So looking at them as, you know, tied up with colonialism and sort of um, instruments of existing power structures that like helped, you know, reinforce that power while making people feel good about themselves. And I think it was also just, just thinking more um, and thinking especially about uh, extrapolating like current trends uh, towards, I guess, a more um, lonely, atomistic, like individualistic society, which I think there's a lot of indication that we're heading in that direction and that that is really bad for people's mental health. Um, but at the same time, this is basically being driven by people's voluntary choices in a way that doesn't feel like directly manipulative because there's not necessarily any one person in charge who's like doing this manipulation. Like I sort of view it as like replacing um, components of human interaction, like one by one with something that's not necessarily better, but that is more appealing to us in the moment. So it's like, mm. uh, I, I heard recently on some podcast or something that they've done studies where like, if you're on an elevator, you will feel better talking to the other person in the elevator than like looking at your phone. But looking at your phone is more appealing in the moment for the most part, because you don't have to engage in this like social awkwardness. Yeah. Uh, and so now that's kind of like what we do. And it's the same with like, now we text people instead of calling them on the phone. And like, there's all these little things where it's like, we're replacing a lot of human interaction with, uh, with automation in a way that is, I think, you know, if you really extrapolate that trend far into the future, and you imagine that we can build uh, robots that are indistinguishable from humans, then it becomes easy to imagine that we will all end up like living our entire existence without really interacting with other people in the future. And like, you know, I'm not going to say that that's categorically a bad outcome. It just seems like kind of, uh, I don't know, kind of weird and dystopian from, I guess, a lot of people's current views on things. Yeah, a lot of this makes me think too of that. There was a, an article in, in the Slate Star Codex, this blog, um, that I'm sure you know about, about yeah. um, this, this poem or, or this, this idea of Moloch, the sort of all the games that we're forced to play, not because we want to play them, but because the incentives at scale kind of create situations where like no, no, no person wants to, wants their country to have to fight wars. No person wants to have, you know, people drowning in debt and things like that. But these are things that kind of materialize almost like as an emergent property of the kinds of behaviors that we, we carry out sort of day to day. This almost seems like a special case of that because there's like that little activation energy barrier to talk to somebody in an elevator. And so if a, if a company can create a set of incentives that allow you to avoid that activation energy barrier, to prevent you from having to push through that and engage in a deep interaction by giving you a little, a little pellet that's kind of more accessible, you're sort of gonna go in that direction and it might not make a big difference in the moment, but at scale with like billions of people indulging in that kind of behavior every day, you end up creating a different kind of society in the limit. Yeah, so like another good example that I think we're, we're starting to see more and more and people are really starting to take seriously and it's hard to say how far it's gonna go is sort of like fake news and this breakdown of um, previous systems of like 
I don't know, social information, social truth creation, let's call it. So like where we somehow arrive at a shared truth, even if it's not actually the, the correct ones, like sometimes, you know, in the past, the consensus was wrong, but it seemed like there was more of a propensity for people to sort of live in the same reality, um, at least within like a, a nation. This is another thing that like, if you start to project further into the future and you imagine that we get better and better at impersonating people and that more and more interaction is mediated by technology, um, it starts to look like very scary because you really can imagine people being completely manipulated and living in these bubbles that are like actually completely detached from each other and from reality. And you can imagine like the line between what is reality and, and what is fiction gets like really blurry and you know, you can't tell and maybe you don't even care and maybe nobody can tell if you're interacting with real people or just like bots or programs or so that was one thing that I started to worry about. And then I guess the other thing that happened during college is that I learned about machine learning and like some, some of the other relevant fields just a little bit um, to, to AI, like uh, computational neuroscience and stuff like that. So I did an internship on that um, at the Baylor College of Medicine with Weiji Ma. And Ultimately, like I came out of college feeling like very unimpressed with current AI systems, you know, because this was before deep learning. And mm -hmm. actually, fun fact, during that internship, I learned about deep learning from another one of the professors there. And I thought it was like, sounded really cool. But like, as soon as they finished explaining what a neural net was and how it worked, they were like, but don't waste your time on this because it's been proven like these don't actually work. And everybody knows that like, you know, they were really exciting 10 years ago, but <laughs> what was, and, by the way, I'm, I'm curious because I, I wasn't attuned to this thing at the time. Like, what did people say to back up the idea that it's been shown that these things don't work? Like, was it just received knowledge from on high, some vague sense, or did they have specific? Uh... So I don't remember this particular interaction well enough to say. I think it was, it was more like received knowledge, but I, I, this is like a total guess, but I want to say that there was something about, you know, you can't backpropagate the signal through many layers, mm -hmm. um, which was, you know, that was what deep learning was all about was like, we, we were having trouble training neural nets that had more than like a single hidden layer or something like this um, with, with backpropagation at the time. You know, I think that does seem like a very plausible showstopper. And the, the people who were, you know, busy, like basically inventing deep learning uh, or like figuring out ways to train deep nets, that was their, their primary, uh, preoccupation at that time, as far as I understand. We didn't have the, the hardware acceleration that we have now. And we also didn't have the big data sets. Like, um, actually maybe ImageNet was invented in 2009. I'm not sure, but it was, you know, we didn't have big data sets and we didn't have big compute. And I think that's really what drove a lot of the deep learning revolution, so to speak. So even more than, I mean, there have been important algorithmic advances um, but initially, uh, a lot of it was just, I mean, like AlexNet was basically just backpropagation in a, in, a, in a deep convnet. Crazy to think, just like eight years ago, this, this is all unfolding. So, yeah. so you somehow managed to, uh, to avoid going into deep learning at that stage. Did you rediscover it later? Yeah, so what happened was after I graduated college, uh, I decided I want to try being a musician. And so I was doing that for uh, like two years before I ended up going back for grad school. And... During that time, so again, it's another one of these things where I don't remember exactly when I started to hear about arguments about existential risk from AI, but presumably I heard about this from Less Wrong or something connected to Less Wrong. And basically I found these arguments fairly plausible. I just wasn't thinking that we were going to get AI on 
like that short of a time scale. And so what I was imagining a more likely future would look like was like for the next hundred years, we're still going to have these massive increases in computational resources. So we're going to get massively scaled up versions of the narrow AI systems that we have right now, mm-hmm. which are going to end up running like huge parts of the world because it's just so cheap to run them at scale. And I, I imagine that this would like create a large pressure driving for various forms of conformity where like this algorithm is not actually good at predicting human behavior, but as a human, you have to be predictable or else you become very expensive for the rest of society Mm. to handle. And um, so that also seemed very dystopian. And in the end, like thinking about all this stuff, I was like, well, I don't know if X risk is like a real thing. Nobody who's actually doing machine learning or AI seems to be caring about it. It seems like it's just these, these fringe people, these outsiders on the, on this, website, but I do know that like AI is just going to keep getting better and it's going to be really powerful one way or another. And so like, let's get involved and see what's going on there. Although actually I think, yeah, that's, that's maybe not quite the full story because what really tipped the the bucket for me, because there were a lot of other fields that I was thinking of uh, trying to get into was taking Jeff Hinton's Coursera course on neural networks. Mm. And that would have been, yeah, in the fall of 2012. So like right when ImageNet was happening and like that really blew me away and what blew me away even more than the image classification results that he showed in that class were the text generation so this was like Ilya Sutskiver had a paper in I think 2011 generating text one character at a time with a recurrent neural net you know the, the whole idea of like artificial creativity was something that I had sort of thought about and been like well I don't know. It does seem like, I don't know how you'd get a machine to be creative. You know, maybe you just feed it like some random numbers, but like, that doesn't seem like it's going to work very well. (laughs) And then to, so to see this kind of like proof of concept and see how it could be done was really incredible to me. And and that kind of made my decision that I wanted to get into this field because you could tell, you know, watching this course and seeing the, the comments that, and just having having looked a little bit at what exists before and hearing Jeff's arguments about like why neural nets were, were better that like something big was happening, right? Um, yeah. So I was super lucky to to have had that, you know, I, I had like 10 Coursera courses that I was thinking about, you know, taking or at least looking at some lectures. And one day I just kind of sat down and watched all the lectures from Jeff's class. And then I was like, well, <laughs> I know what I'm doing. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then, you know, I was early enough that there weren't tons of people like, you know, super mm. talented people clambering to get into these labs. And so I got admitted to NYU and University of Montreal, and I decided to go to UDAM because it kind of seemed at the time like computer vision was basically solved, and Jan LeCun's group at NYU seemed very focused on computer vision. So I was like, let's let's go uh, where they're doing like more fundamental deep learning stuff across the board. And also, I, I was curious to just live somewhere else um, other than the states, which is where I'm from. So, <laughs> and then. Once I got to to grad school, I realized that nobody in the field of AI was taking X risk seriously because they were completely unfamiliar with it. They had never like heard anything about it until you know the media started publishing headlines with Terminators and like Elon yeah. Musk was running his mouth and they were like, oh my God, like <laughs> this is these people. And so that's when I really started to like kind of I don't want to say freak out, but like realize that like this was actually something that I wanted to take on in a big way and that it was really like the situation was way worse than I imagined. Like when I when I was going into grad school, I was like, I'm going to get there and I'm going to find out that like there are good reasons to not be worried about X risk. And that's why nobody is worried about it is because they just have like very, you know, 
reputations like cached at hand be like as soon as this comes up somebody's just gonna be like oh no we don't have to worry about that because xyz i'd be like okay cool <laughs> it's totally the opposite it's funny that you you raise elon musk and all the the sort of media hype around terminator type scenarios because i do get the sense that that's a big part of what most people think to this day ai safety is about you know they, they raise the terminator scenario like the average person that is and yet when you when you start to crack it open the space is so full of nuance it, there's everything from the sort of slow versus fast takeoff like our thing is just going to go boom and we're going to get a single ai system that just like self-improves to blazes and takes over the world or are we going to look at basically a market-driven growth process where there's sort of a liftoff that happens across the world do you have a, a perspective on that? I mean, I know it's going to be hedged in a, a bunch of uncertainty, but just out of curiosity. Basically, no. Like, I, I think uh, I think it's really hard to predict how things are going to play out in any, like, level of concrete detail. I do think that a lot of people want a concrete scenario, and that's a big, like, stumbling block or barrier to people, like, buying into this, I don't know, mm. this worldview, if you want to call it that. That's probably a bit too dramatic. Because... Uh, it's hard to, to picture like some something at a really detailed level of like, then this happens, then this happens. So like yeah. any specific concrete scenario you can think of it just like, I don't know, there's kind of little bits and pieces that just don't seem super plausible or seem like not quite what would actually happen. I'll, I'll say like my general concern about this is it's actually, it's it's still kind of related and tied up to like the Moloch type concerns that we were talking about where like there's nobody in charge of society and it, basically there's still a lot of really bad coordination failures that happen between people um, and groups of people. Mm-hmm. And I think so long as we have that same sort of geopolitical or like social situation where there's nothing nothing like a world government although I think I shouldn't even use that word because everybody seems to uh, have bad or misleading um, associations with it but I think we need some way to to really have everybody coordinate to avoid uncontrolled development of dangerous technologies. So I think there's going to be a trade-off between the safety of systems, and by that I mean specifically like the existential safety, so how much they increase the odds of human extinction, let's put it that way, versus how effective they are at solving some task. So you're going to have the most effective systems are not going to be the safest systems, basically. Mm. And so there's going to be this tension that pretty much everyone who is making decisions about deploying some AI system is going to face some version of this trade-off, I think, where they can have a more competitive and performance system, but it's going to impose a little bit of extra cost on everyone because it's going to increase the risk of everybody dying. This like um, game theoretic or like structural situation that we're going to find ourselves in just really doesn't look promising to me. And the way that we've seen you know, humanity deal with these kind of situations in the past is not very encouraging. Classic examples people like to use are climate change and nuclear war or like nuclear proliferation. I think you could also look at things more like, I don't know, tax havens and maybe immigration policy or sort of how we uh, treat the global poor in general as another example where probably a lot of people would support uh, giving more money to the global poor, but there's some coordination problem between rich countries where 
you know, it's it's very easy to defect and free ride a bit. So that's kind of the the like I don't know the underlying basis, I guess. It makes sense. I mean, it's a it's a common theme, obviously, in the AI policy space, where and I I think very few people necessarily realize how seriously serious people take this risk. Um, that there are are real people who understand the technology very deeply and who are just extrapolating curves into the future and saying, you know, look, as our technology gets better, we are going to reach a point where the amount of damage per amount of energy invested in AI development that can be done is going to increase radically. And one country is going to be able to do something really, really bad. And then another country is going to want the same ability and, or, or even just different companies. And as you say, there's like this coordination problem where, you know, at what point does one country or company turn to the others and say, okay, folks, you know, that's it. We're going to ease up on the gas here so that we can focus on safety. It's, yeah, it doesn't seem super obvious at, at what point that juncture would be reached, if ever. And to, to some degree, I mean, the fact that at least at least we haven't dropped nuclear weapons on each other since the 1940s, hopefully is, is a sign that something like this can be achieved. But it's, uh, I think proliferation itself is maybe a, a closer proxy to just like the development of AI technology. Nobody has to actually intend to deploy it in a malicious way. It can just kind of get out of get out of hand on its own. Yeah. So in the past, people were talking about this in terms of the dichotomy between like accidents and misuse. And I think like it's just completely the wrong way of looking at it because the the large majority of the risk doesn't come from um, like pure accident or pure misuse. It comes from things that are more like uh, what's been called structural risk <clears throat> um, and this is, I, I was previously calling this something more like reckless use, but I think it's, that still is a little bit too judgmental on the people who are really just put in this position where their incentives tell them to, to do X and then end up doing X. So in the case uh, that we're talking about, do X means like deploy this system that is not as safe as it should be. So like maybe it has a one in a million chance of uh, taking over the world and killing everybody instead of more like a one in a, a trillion or something. Um, and one in a million still doesn't seem that bad, but if you have millions of people deploying systems with that level of risk, then we're probably all going to die. And on that optimistic note, maybe maybe it's worth talking a little bit about what some of those safety strategies do look like, because you've worked on quite a few. And I think there's one in particular that you know, when I first emailed you about having this conversation, you flagged this paper. You're like, oh, we should, we should talk about this. I had no idea you'd done this work. I didn't know this was even a thing. And I just found it so fascinating. This is the idea of incentives, like examining the incentives of AI systems. I'd love to just get your thoughts first on like, what do you mean by incentives for AI systems? How can an AI system have incentives and how can we understand what those are in the context of AI safety? So I came at this this line of work and this research mostly by thinking about this idea of instrumental goals. In my mind, this is the main argument for like worrying about an AI system taking over the world is that it will want to take over the world because it will have an instrumental goal to do so if it is trying to achieve something in the distant enough future. So over a time span of like several years, if you have the ability to take over the world and like remake it in your image, so maybe like build a much bigger computer or uh, more copies of yourself or something like this, they start to look like pretty good strategies for achieving your goal for almost any goal in, in the long run. And so the idea is like instrumental goals generally would include things like acquiring more power and resources and not like being turned off if you're a if you're an AI system. 
And so that means that if we build these kinds of systems, people will have incentives to build these kinds of systems because they're going to be the ones that are most capable at things like making money or, or winning wars or winning information wars. So if we build those kinds of systems, then we should be worried that they're going to have, they're going to see those uh, those kinds of actions as obvious, I don't know, steps to take towards achieving their ultimate goal. The idea of this line of work in my mind is to be able to control instrumental goals and say, look, yes, I want you to reach this outcome, but I only want you to do it by optimizing over these pathways of influence. So the example that we use in the paper, which I think is a really nice one, is with content recommendation. And this sort of goes back to, you know, the the present day issues that we were talking about a bit earlier as well. Mm -hmm. If you set up an AI system and you ask it to like maximize the, the amount of clicks that this person makes or like the amount of ad revenue that you get from this person, one way that you can do that or one way that the, the AI system can try to do that is by finding things that that person likes that they're going to click on or that they're going to want to buy and just trying to figure out, you know, the, the optimal set of things to present to this person from that point of view. Another thing that it can do instead is it can try and change the person and change what they're interested in mm. and maybe get them to like adopt a more consumerist lifestyle so that they make more impulse buys or maybe get them interested in some, you know, uh, conspiracy theory so that they spend a lot of time like trying to, you know, dig up the truth and, and share it and spend a lot of time on their platform clicking on things. And so this second way of like getting lots of, revenue or lots of clicks is optimizing for that same objective, that same number, which is like, how much money am I making or how many clicks am I getting from this person? But is doing it using this pathway of influence that goes through that person and their, you know, their beliefs, their attitudes, their personality. And what I think that we would typically want is something that is really not trying to influence the person and is only trying to sort of meet them where they're at and find the things that they currently want um, or that they would sort of want by default without the AI system you know, steering them towards some particular outcome or preference. So that's what, uh, what this line of research is like, hopefully going to allow us to do. And I say hopefully because I think it's still in early stages. Uh, I should emphasize something about my paper versus the rest of the field. So. Um, there's a few other people who have done a lot of work on incentives or like very closely related ideas before me. So the main two who I would mention are Stuart Armstrong uh, at the Future of Humanity Institute and Tom Everett at DeepMind, and uh, certainly like some of their collaborators as well. Our work is sort of coming at this from a little bit of a different point of view, because we're trying to ask the question of how can we actually control these incentives. So how can we actually tell the AI system, I want you to optimize over this pathway of influence, but not this pathway. As opposed to saying in Tom's work anyways, the, the framing has usually been, here's the situation that the AI is in and here are the pathways of influence that exist. Which ones would it have an incentive to influence? That's why we talk about hidden incentives in this paper is because the goal is to basically, you can think of it as like lying to the AI system and telling it, no matter what you do, it doesn't change what the human wants. So like, there's no reason in trying to change them in any particular way. And then the hope is that if you set that up in the right way, then you'll get an AI system that really doesn't try to influence the human. Something I should have mentioned earlier, that's really important, I think, because almost everyone who I talk to about this seems to 
seems to have this misunderstanding. There's a difference between not trying to change what the human wants and trying to make sure that what the human wants doesn't change. Right. So the, you know, if you're interacting with uh, a content recommendation system or just, you know, as a, in the, in the course of life, your interests and your preferences and sort of the choices that you would make in a given situation are going to change naturally. And by interacting with the system, they're going to change, you know, in a, in a way that they wouldn't have otherwise. So like, maybe you're going to hear about some, some news or some products that you wouldn't have heard about otherwise, and that's going to change the things that you're interested in. And that's all fine. That's not what we're trying to prevent. What we're trying to prevent is this incentive for the system to deliberately change you in a particular way. It's, it's an interesting kind of challenge to philosophically is just like figuring out you know, this is something I imagine will be really relevant in the limit of highly capable, highly advanced AI systems where they're able to persuade us almost infinitely well as these systems really become super effective. Then we, we're faced with this question. And as you rightly pointed out, I mean, we're already kind of there today. You know, which version of me do I want to be in the future? Do I want my views never to change? Like presumably not. So, so I'm admitting some level of influence, like I'm allowing the AI to have some level of influence on my, the course of my personal development, but then how much or, or what kind, what I find really interesting about your paper is you're actually taking an opinionated stance on that by really saying the AI can change your views so long as it didn't explicitly intend to change your views, as long as the, the view changing is like a byproduct of a more passive process on the part of the AI. Is that accurate? Yeah, I think something like that. One like quibble-ish is like this intend to is like is still like not really defined. So, mm. you know, one thing that is true is that the AI system could know that taking a certain action would have a predictable effect on your views. But so long as it's not choosing that action because of the effect, then we're fine. And so what's interesting is that I think this sort of machinery that, uh, again, these, these other people before me mostly have developed, really gives you a way to make concrete and mathematical these really squishy ideas that we weren't even sure if they made sense. Like the idea of like, like I, I like to think of this as analogous with like something you might do with a friend of yours where you're like, you know, I'm trying to make this person make this decision and I don't want to unduly influence them. I just want right. to provide them with information. Now I know that like providing them with this or that information might change their mind in a certain direction, but I'm going to try and just be like, you know, objective basically, and just do my best job as possible of informing them and then let them make the decision. And I think this is the sort of thing that like we kind of do all the time as humans. Now, hopefully we will have a way of specifying this to AI systems as well. And like, if I'm very optimistic, then, you know, this might actually allow us to program systems that don't have these dangerous instrumental goals. And then there'll still be this issue of like, is that too big of a competitive disadvantage if you only allow your AI system to optimize in certain ways or along certain paths of influence? But I think it's it's much better than, you know, for I think a lot of people are thinking or have been thinking about this in terms of, are we gonna build agents or are we gonna build oracles? So like an agent is an AI that actually goes out in the world and like interacts with the world and does stuff. And an oracle is just like a question answering thing that like maybe, you know, sits in this very uh, isolated box that it can't get out of and just answers yes or no to yes or no questions. And I view this incentive management techniques as sort of creating more of like a spectrum between these two extremes where we can do something that moves towards a more agency design and therefore is more capable and more performant, but still doesn't have the, like all of the problems that are associated with this full agency 
um, such as instrumental goals. So that's really interesting because as I, when I read the paper, it never occurred to me to think of the framework that you've got here as providing any kind of mathematical definition of objectivity, but I could imagine like that almost being applied to, I mean, you couldn't do it technically, but you could almost apply a definition like that to like a news service, for example, saying, hey, it's okay for you to pick and choose which facts and which stories to, to tell me. I mean, that's a necessary part of your job as a news service is distilling all this kind of fire hose of information and picking out just the relevant bits. But you've got to make sure that you're doing it without being motivated by desire to move my view in a particular direction a priori? Is that like a, a fair mapping? I think so. I mean, so I actually think that this this content recommendation example, so to be clear, I, I don't think that this is the main issue with current content recommendation systems is that they are, you know, optimizing to manipulate users, the, the mm -hmm. system themselves. I think it's it's more of like a social and human problem at the moment. But I do think that this is kind of an obvious thing to want any recommendation system, or at least, you know, a lot of recommendation systems to, to not have that incentive to manipulate users. And so I would hope that, you know, in, in the future, we will see this become like sort of a standard design uh, requirement or, or desiderata for content recommendation system designers. Yeah, no, it makes perfect sense. So we've got, the, we've got the goal kind of clearly laid out then. So the goal is to set up a recommender system that doesn't explicitly try to manipulate you. How do you actually then accomplish that goal? So what's the strategy that you you take to do that in so, 240 characters or less, please? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so this is gonna get like a little bit complicated. We're actually sort of like taking one step back from that goal and saying, we're, we're really trying to understand what's going on when you do this thing where you like hide the incentive from the from the AI system. So because the incentive is in some sense still there, like it's still the case that the AI system can get a higher, you know, final performance by manipulating the user. We're just telling it that that's not going to happen mm -hmm. if, it, if it takes those actions in some sense. So you might think, well, maybe there's still maybe the ai system is still in some cases going to end up doing that thing that that works better or going to have some bias towards towards manipulating people if that actually gives it a better score the point of our paper was sort of that once you start thinking about hiding incentives in this way whether or not a certain incentive is hidden or revealed so like whether or not the agent is actually going to act on it has to do with not just the, the loss function, but all the other details of how you set up the algorithm. So we, we develop like really simple environments where you can sort of test how do these different learning algorithms behave. The best example I think is this environment, which is sort of like the prisoner's dilemma. So you have a, an agent that at every time step decides to cooperate or defect, where cooperate is really more like cooperate with itself on the next time step. I mean, that's literally what it is. So you can think of it as like invest or consume. So like when I invest my resources, instead of consuming them right now, I'm going to have more resources next time. And so it's sort of like, I'll be richer overall. And so you can view this as like the, the solution that, that we're actually trying to avoid, right? Where the investment now is like, okay, in order to manipulate this person, maybe I have to show them something that they're less likely to click on right now. So it's not just I'm not just optimizing for the thing that, they, that they're most likely to, to want or like right now, but I'm going to try and sort of lose a little bit of predictive accuracy so that in the future, they're going to be easier to predict. So in that sense, this manipulation or instrumental goal behavior in general is sort of about making investments in the future. So it's about being 
non-myopic is what we call it. So like not short-sighted, not greedy, but like making these investments in the future. If I follow them, the, the, yeah. go the goal, as I understood it from the paper, the goal was like, you want to make sure that this algorithm can't think too far ahead because it's when it starts to think far enough ahead that it realizes, oh, like instead of just, you know, in the short term optimizing for showing the, the thing that'll get the most clicks, I can try to manipulate my user. I can do whatever instrumental thing that, that isn't actually what we want it to do. It's that time horizon that allows it to realize like, oh, if I just forego a little bit of reward right now to play this long game kind of dangerous and messed up strategy, then I can get more reward uh, down the road. Is that right? Yeah. Um, yeah, that's, that's exactly right. Except uh, it's not that we, again, it's not that we want the AI to not I forget how you put it, but to not know what's going to happen or something like that, or to not think about the future. We just want it to not like care about its influence over the, the, the human's future preferences, right? So it can know what will happen or it can, it can be able to predict these things, but it's, it's not going to like account for them when it decides what the correct or best behavior is. So, so in fact, like this is, this is really a restricted version of like what we want to accomplish in general. So the idea is like, we're trying to make the AI system do the myopic thing. So to just do the thing that is best right now, in general, we want to be able to do things that are more sophisticated and subtle and say, we want you to plan ahead, but only along this path, but not this other path. Mm -hmm. But if we can't even solve this very simple version of the problem where we say, just don't, don't plan for the future, then, you know, we should probably start there. Yeah, no, makes perfect sense. And, and the recommendation example as well, I think is, anyway, it was really useful for me as I read the paper, just to kind of get something concrete that surprisingly does map on to a category of problem that we can expect to happen. Is that something, by the way, that to your knowledge, like, is that actually going on? Are there, have people been able to show that, for example, you know, the say Twitter algorithm is making recommendations that are, I mean, in effect, we've seen the result, the polarization, but it's not clear whether that's the actual instrumental goal of the algorithm, right? Yeah. Um, so I don't think anybody has produced like, you know, very convincing evidence of this, although it's not clear how you would go about doing that either. Like I said earlier, I don't think this is like, you know, one of the main factors behind current issues with content yeah. recommendation systems. But I do know that a lot of these systems, or I should say at least some of these systems are using or have in the past used reinforcement learning, which is explicitly trying to optimize for, you know, over, over an extended period of time in a, in a black box way where the system is, is just saying, pick whatever actions lead to the most reward in the long run. And so that's, that's not doing the kind of thing that I'm talking about where you're you know, choosing which pathways to optimize over. It's just saying, optimize over them all, basically. So I think it's, it's an open question of like how well a recommender system like this is going to be able to actually model human psychology to, to carry out this kind of a strategy. Um, you might think that this is like quite hard because human psychology is quite complex. On the other hand, you might think it's like pretty easy in some cases, at least, because it seems like there's some things that are like pretty predictably uh, lead us down click holes. So I, I described like how we're how we're like sort of what we're trying to accomplish, and then which is just to make a system that's myopic, and then that we've designed like these very simple environments to test if different algorithms will will in fact behave myopically, 
And basically our main result in my mind is to demonstrate these failure modes where you have a system that you might think would behave myopically, but it ends up not behaving myopically. Mm. And so there's two ways that we can accomplish that. So first of all, we start off with like our, our sort of baseline agent, which does in fact behave myopically be, and is just being trained with like reinforcement learning or supervised learning, but only to optimize the current reward. So it, it really, its reward is, is just what happens right now. And so even if it can influence the future, it doesn't care about that, um, or at least it shouldn't care about that, we, you know, is the, is the idea or the goal. And then you can add uh, a meta-learning algorithm, which is basically an outer loop algorithm that is supposed to help figure out how the inner loop, um, the original learning algorithm can do a better job of learning. And the way these are trained is they say, okay, I was using this learning algorithm, you know, for all these time steps, and then I got a good result. And then I use this other learning algorithm for all these time steps, and I got a better result. So this learning algorithm is better than the first one. So I'm going to use that learning algorithm. Implicit in this idea is that you're going to measure this performance of these learning algorithms based on the outcomes they produce. And so this uh, sort of smuggles back in this goal-directed uh, behavior that can lead to these instrumental goals. And so our experiments demonstrate that that, that happens. You add meta-learning to this agent and it flips from doing the defect thing, the myopic thing, to investing and being non-myopic, investing in the future. And, and so just to check my understanding on this, yeah. as I recall from reading the paper, so you have like these individual, individual agents that have their own parameters and their own hyperparameters. So like, I don't know, let's say it's a, some neural network or something. Each individual neural network should just be like focused on that myopic focus. But then that meta-learning step that I guess kind of, it, it's almost as if it, it has oversight. It, it's able to see further into the future because it's seeing like what all of these different algorithms are seeing. And in that way, what previously had been an opaque incentive that the whole system couldn't see all of a sudden becomes revealed because the meta-algorithm is able to like spot all these connections between different algorithms go, oh, if I put these things together, I can figure out, actually, it's best if I manipulate the user or do whatever horrible thing. Yeah, yeah, something like that. I mean, I think the, I don't want to like play up the sophistication of the of the solutions here, because like, you know, yeah. in the experiments I was mentioning, it's not even a neural net, it's like a single parameter. So everything is very toy. And it's very just like proof of concept of this sort of thing happening. But that's, that's the kind of, that's, that's one of the, that's the failure mode I was just describing, basically. And then there's one other failure mode that we also found, which is, uh, has to do with partial observability, causality, and I like to connect it to decision theory, because this is something that people in the AI safety community have also thought a lot about. So in this case, what ends up happening is we have an agent that basically learns to, you know, either cooperate or defect by looking at the, the history of how well things went when it did either of those actions. So it's just going to say, here are all the times I defected, and here's the average reward I got when I defected. Here are all the times I cooperated, here's the average reward I got when I cooperated. If the average reward that I got when I cooperated is higher, then I'm going to cooperate most of the time. And if the defect one is higher, then I'll defect most of the time. This is a version of Q learning, which is a really popular deep reinforcement learning algorithm. <clears throat> and what we found happens here is that sometimes the, the agent ends up learning to defect, which is what we expect. But sometimes it learns to cooperate instead, which is again, the non-myopic thing, that's the failure mode. And to cooperate like at, at high levels, you know, persistently throughout uh, the, the rest of training. What's happening there is really interesting because basically it's using the fact that it cooperated on this time step as a proxy 
for whether or not it cooperated on the previous time step. So because the policy is likely to be the same policy at these two time steps, um, that correlates these two decisions. And so even though my current decision to cooperate doesn't cause me to have cooperated in the past, it does make it more likely in a statistical sense that I did cooperate in the past because mm. these two uh, random variables are correlated via the same underlying policy. And so that means that the agent learns to use its current choice to cooperate or defect as a signal about whether or not it cooperated or defected on the last time step. And so if you know, you know the payoffs of the prisoner's dilemma, defect defect is worse than cooperate cooperate. That's like what makes it a paradox. And so in the, in the present, defecting always gives you more reward regardless of what your opponent played. But here the agent ends up noticing that when it defects, it just so happens that it opponent, its opponent defected almost all the time. And when it cooperated, it just so happens that its opponent cooperated almost all the time. And so that makes cooperating look better. And this is really similar to what people have talked about in terms of like the open source prisoner's dilemma, where you can like look at your opponent's source code. And then even though you know, like if you're playing against an exact copy of yourself, which the agent almost is in our setting, then even though you know that your decision doesn't cause your opponent's decision, you do know that your opponent will make the same decision as you because you're running the same code. And so there's this idea that uh, that's actually the right thing to do in that situation. If you're playing against a copy of yourself in the prisoner's dilemma, you should cooperate. And that's kind of concerning because the existing work on incentives uh, use these what's called causal influence diagrams and assume that the agent is using causal decision theory and what we show here is basically, you can end up with an agent that behaves as if it's not using causal decision theory if you don't get the causal model exactly right. Mm. And so this is sort of, um, I, I guess I should say the consequence of that being that you have an agent that will cooperate with past or future versions of itself, even though it doesn't like well, it almost feels like a kind of data leakage. It's sort of reminiscent of, you know, when you look at like a Kaggle competition and you've got some data in the, in the labels that ends up leaking its way through into the, into the inputs. The, the model shouldn't be allowed, or at least our assumption is that the model doesn't have, have some information about the label. But in reality, it does. And it, it kind of seems like that's what's going on in, in a lot of these cases, even with the meta learner, where it's like, you would hope at least the way you've set it up as a human, you naively think, okay, like we're all good because the individual learners can't see anything. But then it's almost like adding that meta-learning level creates the opportunity for a certain level of data leakage. And the same, same with the sort of prisoner's dilemma situation. I think that's true. Um, or I think, that's, I think that does apply. I, it's not like the way that I have thought about it. Um, so I'm not sure if it's like to what extent that's actually... Um, a really relevant feature or just like something that happens to be true off the top yeah. of my head, but I, I'll have to think about it a bit more. It's a fascinating study. Anybody interested in going into the, the literature on incentives for machine learning systems, I, I really recommend taking a look at this paper because it's such a, a great exploration of that. I do want to ask you a big picture question to wrap things up though. Sure. Are you generally optimistic about strategies like this or um, maybe let's zoom out even more. Are you generally optimistic about AI alignment? Do you think this is a problem that is solvable? Man, tough question. Uh, I don't really know what it would mean for this to be solvable or not um, in a technical sense. I think that's like, there's, there's, 
these things get very murky very fast when you start thinking about them it gets very philosophical like we don't even know uh what we're aiming for right so people talk about like alignment targets which might be just like what a person would say or another example is like what a person would say if they had a long long time to reflect like maybe several lifetimes or you have like coherent extrapolated volition which is sort of like what society at large would say if we had like all of the time in the world and we're very well informed and rational and stuff and had a big you know powwow about it or whatever we, we don't even understand which of these things like what those would look like and if if they're what we want so whether or not we can succeed in in principle like whether or not the problem is solvable i think is it's like yeah really hard question in terms of feeling optimistic like i don't know um compared to where i was several years ago i'd say i'm pretty optimistic uh overall i think you know i'm, I'm certainly more bad sign. yeah i'm certainly more optimistic about technical research like when mm. i started my masters and even up to the point where i started my phd i i was very concerned about AIX risk, but I felt like there was almost no purpose in trying to do technical research on it because in the end, it's just going to come down to this, this global coordination problem and um, getting people to, to use the, the safe AIs and, and not use the dangerous AI systems. And I still basically feel that way, but I guess I'm like more optimistic that with things like this incentive management stuff and just all the other advances we've seen in the, in the field, it's like pretty encouraging picture overall. I just think, personally, I think even if we had the perfect solution to uh, what people sometimes call like single, single alignment, which is what most people are focused on as a technical problem. This is like, how do you align a single AI system with a single user? Mm. Even if we had that solution just like dropped into our laps today, I'm not sure that that would lead to a good outcome. I think it's more likely that our current systems of like, coordination and our current social institutions would not be up to the task of like avoiding sort of all out anarchy and, and competitive races to the bottom in that world. Well, ho hopefully so, similar progress will be made on that front too. Do you imagine that, do you imagine that having super advanced systems that could help us reason better about those kinds of game theoretic challenges might help? Yeah, absolutely. If we had solved single, single alignment, um, and, you know, maybe it was just like one or two groups that were very devoted to solving these sort of social organization problems immediately after and focused on that as soon as they solved this single, single alignment problem. I think that's, uh, that's, that certainly might turn out well. I still don't think that's, that's going to happen, but uh, yeah. you know, that, that's one possible way that the future can go well. Yeah, as you said earlier, I mean, predicting the future obviously is so fraught with, uh, with wrongness. Well, thanks so much for uh, for making the time, David. Really appreciate it. Uh, do you have a uh, like a Twitter handle you want to share, or somewhere people can go to to look at your work? Well, to look at my work, go to my Google Scholar. Um, to I do have a Twitter handle. I don't actually remember what it is. It's probably David S. Kruger, but <laughs> I don't remember. You can just Google me and and uh, find like my webpage on Mila and stuff as well. Well, really appreciate it, and uh, thanks so much for a great conversation. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's been fun.